Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Britt, how are you? Good. How are you, Bill? I am doing so good. Glad to be here. Tuesday yeah. morning, March 8th. One Happy afternoon. International Women's Day. Look at that. I saw that this morning. So, you know, yeah, which we're awesome. actually going to be doing some feminine divine today. So that feels I love good. It. I love it. How's life treating you? Good, good. Just plugging along with the kiddos. What's new for you? Uh, not much at all. I'm just enjoying being home a bunch more and working on uh, podcast stuff. Lots of podcast stuff. I'm really Lots excited for your stuff. For your yeah. conversation tomorrow with David Bakavoy. He's one of my personal favorite podcasters. Cool. Yeah, it would be fun to have that conversation with him. All right. But today we have an amazing guest. I'm sharing with you. It's almost like I'm sharing one of my secret weapons here. I'm sharing with you one of my spiritual directors. Um, and he's been a spiritual mentor for me for 20 years and we're still meeting and I'm still gleaning from his wisdom. And so I'm really excited today to introduce David Peck to the conversation. Hi, and hi. Hi. How are you? Fine, and I'll just you. do a little clip here. So David has a PhD in the history of the Middle East and Islamic civilization. He's taught history, philosophy, political science and religion been a student of world religion since 1975 and in 2014 joined the international Sufi order and then in 2020 became a Sufi master. And so today we're going to be diving into Sufism and the wisdom traditions, mysticism. And I'm really excited for this conversation. Uh, David's been a real powerful spiritual mentor for my entire adult life. And so I'm really excited to share him with you all. Yeah, it's gonna be fun. Same to you, Britt. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So the first question: the last time we podcasted, David and I on his um, on his website, which we'll share at the end here, um, was we we did um, kind of your story first and how you came kind of stumbled into Sufism, but I want to switch that around, and this time I want to talk about just give us a glimpse into what Sufism is. And then we'll kind of dive into your story about how you discovered it. So what is Sufism? Okay, there's a kind of a broad answer. I'll try to be succinct with it and, and get to the point. But the broad answer is that Sufism represents there's an aspect of the spiritual tradition uh, that was originally given by the divine to the first humans, whether we want to call them Adam and Eve or Eve or whatever name we may have, that it was actually a gift of divine guidance intended to allow humans to discover their soul and pursue an experiential path that would lead to uh, self-realization and, and uh, uh, you know, eventual destination of joy, etc. And so consequently, it manifests itself throughout human history. And that's what kind of it's a wisdom tradition in that sense. So uh, although Sufism has been in most recent times associated with the religion of Islam, 
Sufis would say, well, this spiritual tradition we're going to call Sufism right now is also found in Native American traditions. It's also found in prehistoric, uh, you know, prehistory concepts of religion and spirituality that may have been appearing in the Upper Paleolithic period, or it may be uh, that it's associated with Buddhism or Hinduism, or uh, it can be associated with Zoroastrianism or and so we tend to view uh, the question of Sufism very broadly. More specifically, the Sufi tradition has come down to us through uh, the formal venue of the Islamic religion. Uh, although Sufis like me, we're not Muslims, and we don't feel any necessary uh, association with the religion of Islam. However, uh, Sufis largely believe that there have been guardian religions or guardian faiths or guardian traditions that allowed Sufism to flourish and that Islam is one of these. And uh, so there's, it's a, but it's a spiritual path that, uh, that we believe is a human birthright and a human heritage and a, a spiritual gift to all peoples and, and has been with us throughout time. Okay. So I want to give just some background of, I'm, I'm remembering as I was telling, you know, giving your intro, I was remembering what it was like when I met you. So I was 17 at the time and I had just enrolled in college, just a curious kid with a lot of big questions. And you were doing, the, the thing that drew me to you is you were doing something with religion that I had never seen anyone do before. You were using it as a tool to do really deep inner soul work. And I really, it was so profound to me. It was so different than my experience with religion before that I just signed up for all of your classes and we went on a journey together. So tell it. So as I'm asking this question, um, I'm just reminded of kind of where we started. But my next, next question was, you know, Sufism is described as a wisdom tradition. So what is a wisdom tradition and how does it differ from a religion? And what is it about it that would, you know, draw a student like me to say, this is different than my religion classes. We're doing deep inner soul work. This is really different. And kind of give us some sense of what that difference is, why that would be so profound for me at that age. Okay, uh, so I was experiencing these same kind of questions when I was young too. And uh, the way I've kind of sorted this out and the way Sufism tends to sort it out is that um, <clears throat> we're not opposed to any religion, right? Religions have their place and religions do their thing. And there's, there's some very good things that can happen in religion. But the religious approach, to put it in sort of philosophical terms, is that it deals with ethics and epistemology first, then it deals with being or what in philosophy you call ontology last. So that if ethics, the rules, the commandments, if you, if you behave a certain way, then you have to couple that with thinking and believing a certain way. That's the epistemological element of it, right? So behavior and thinking, or we would say orthopraxy and orthodoxy, right? The, the interaction between behavior and, and, and thinking uh, is supposed to lead to some change in being. Well, Sufism and most mystical traditions turn that on its head. The notion is, you no, know, you start with your being and then your knowledge will be what it should be and your ethics will be what they should be because they are coming from your soul. So we tend to view religions as working outward toward inward or intending to do that. But wisdom traditions and spirituality want to work inward to outward. 
frankly, I think that if you look in the New Testament, that's exactly what Jesus was trying to do all the time. He was trying to get underneath the commandments, underneath the teachings, underneath. So it wasn't a question of outward. It was a question of inward. Now, having said that, um, <clears throat> what we try to do in Sufism then is realize that all of our deepest knowledge comes from experience. And that's what wisdom traditions and mystical paths do is how do you know something is real or something is true? Well, you have to have a faculty that is real and a faculty that is true to perceive that. And the mind and the intellect is notoriously fickle on that. If you accept certain premises, you end up in a certain place. And if you, if you, so there's always the question of um, how do you know something is true? And for a Sufi and a mystic, it, you resonate. Your soul is like a resonator. It's your truth sense. It's your reality organ. So we want to cultivate that organ so that it, so to speak, hears and responds uh, accurately from within. So we kind of, we don't work about, worry about creeds or we don't worry about the commandments, yet we often live very ethical lives and we often have very strong belief, but it should emerge out of our experience. Does that, does that somewhat make sense? So in yeah. a wisdom tradition, as a guide, my job is to help you find your soul. My job mm -hmm. is to introduce your conscious self, your ethical self, your intellectual self to your, your soul, which is your eternal self, which is your, you, we might call it a divine nature or something like that. And so the God within, whatever term we want to use. So does a wisdom tradition is a guide then, and it's passed out from student to guide to student, or I mean, uh, guide to student, guide to student, guide to student, or master to disciple. And I form a part of that chain of transmission. Mm. So is that does that yeah. make sense? And so we don't have scriptures as such. I have to meet with my student and say, where's my student at? What does my student need? Not here's the plan and conform to it or else, which is what religions often do. Right. So it's highly individualized. So kind of filling in some more of our story, me and you. So I met you when I was, you know, young and I loved all the classes that we did. And then, you know, we lost touch and I went about my life. And then years later, I was still stuck in this pattern of trying to find the right story. If I could try to find the right story, which is which happens a lot for people because as you leave, even if you leave your traditional religious background, you still have all the framework there of trying to find a prophet, trying to find a spiritual path, trying to find the, find the quote unquote truth. And I kept looking for a story and I kept looking for the right ethics, the right way to live so that I could figure this out. And I was just stuck there. You know, I kept finding a new story and then it would crumble and I'd find a new story and it would crumble. And I was really just stuck. And so I reached out to you and we went out to lunch and it was really powerful to me to kind of make this shift of going within. And I really appreciated it was the first time where kind of a spiritual leader asked me, you know, what's going on within and I just really said, I really want to explore spirituality, but I really wanted to do it with secular language. Can you meet mm -hmm. me there? And it was like, mm -hmm. yes, I can meet you there. Let's do this together. And that was just so powerful and something that doesn't happen often in organized religion where, where they meet you where you are in the language that you're at. And so that was really transformative for me. Bill, you had I thought, something. 
Next yeah, yeah. It, it, I just want to play off what you guys are talking about. So, uh, David, I would consider myself an atheist, but with a mystical leaning. Like I, I want to be in awe of the universe, and I, I recognize that there are processes that have been happening for billions of years, and we are an outgrowth of that. And I, and I want to take seriously my my human behavior, like what I do that's ethical or unethical and to sit with that on a daily basis, trying to get better and better at being me. And I, I like Brit and like you mentioned, I struggle deeply with religion telling us the way. And, and that religion always has the unique way that solves all the problems and gets us back to whatever salvation is. And yet, as you're pointing out, both of you, the healthiness comes in turning each of us inward. So we look in a mirror and we get to a place where we're both in awe of what's going on inside of us as well as what's going on around us and to take seriously who we are. And so I'm, I'm curious how Sufism approaches that. Like what kinds of things, what kinds of things is it initiating so that I do turn inward so that I am thinking about the world at large and the world at large inside me and working to become a better human being like what what is it offering that i may not get in the same way some other place okay um big question though by the way sorry it's a big one well let's let's maybe start and see where it goes so the Please. first thing i i think i would say is that that within the sufi tradition the only person that knows what you should be and who you should be and how you should be is you mm. so a, a master can never tell should never tell, not that that doesn't happen, but should never tell someone else what they should be or what they should do. Instead, they, they want to, again, introduce themselves to their self and essentially let them know that everything they need, they already possess. So from the Sufi perspective, we've kind of veiled ourself from ourself. Uh, a conundrum that's mentioned many times in sacred texts. I mean, I know in the, the book of Romans, for example, Paul says, I don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing. That which I would not do, I do. And that which I would do, I don't do. What's the matter with me? It's like there's two Pauls. Or you go to Confessions of Augustine or Dante Alighieri. Dante, I, re I awoke to myself. I came to myself and go, who is the I and who is the self? There's something true and real about people that they often realize, I'm not what I want to be. I don't even know what I want to be. And so part of what we do is we enter into a relationship of master to disciple that is exploratory, where I might assign a reading and say, if there's anything in this reading that resonates with you, let's talk about it. And what I'm trying to do is say, well, what is your soul resonating to? In other words, your truth sense, it may be responding to something. What is it responding to? That means that the path of the person I'm working with is their path. There is no way that is for everybody. It can't be uh, because all of our experience is different. All of our, our, our soul needs, all of our desires to express are, are individual. So Sufism begins by recognizing that. Then we have practices. For example, if a student mentions a certain thing resonates with them, we start to explore that. One of the ways we do that um, is I assign meditations that encourage the student to reimagine in themselves within a deep breathing soul space, descend into that. One of the meditations that I use is your tree of life. Reconfigure yourself 
as if you were a tree of life. You're, this is your, your being your soul. Where are you at? Is it a meadow? Are you stuck on a cliff? Do you have, are birds in the branches of your tree? What kind of fruit does it bear? What kind of a tree is it? What are its roots planted in? Where does it draw its nourishment from? Where does it, and it's not like there's any answer to that. I've had a wide variety of answers, but we try to enter what we would call an imaginal soul space where the person does that. Another one I use is your heart fountain, right? We talk about the Sufi notion of the heart and what, 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 how does that work? Where is it at? What are its qualities? Or we have a meditation on the winged heart. You can see the winged heart behind me here on the poster that uh, with the sunburst, the idea is that the soul in the light of the divine soars upward. And so where are you at? What, do, what does your soul heart, your, your heart, winged heart look like? And in doing so, uh, the person can come to terms with, why do I feel my tree is alone? Am I part of a forest? Am I cut off? Do I have insects eating me or do I have? And, and these are just ways in which they learn to configure themselves. And the other thing we do is we meditate upon what we call the divine names, which have come largely, but not exclusively through the Islamic tradition. So we meditate on what we would call characteristics of the divine. Generosity, kindness, fairness, love, various forms, um, and so on. And we try to awaken within the student themselves in these meditations, try to awaken the fact that those are their own characteristics. Maybe they aren't experiencing their generosity because they haven't tapped into it. And so we have this whole soul space of the imaginal coupled with um, meditations upon characteristics of the soul in order for them to find themselves and to unveil themselves to themselves and become a realized human being, that their inward life is their life and their outward life is the manifestation. Yeah. And I, I think that's gorgeous. I mean, anytime we're pointing people inside and, and helping them kind of figure it out, what's going on in there a little more, I, I think that's the secret. And I think, you know, we're all in this group going to agree with that. Um, how does Sufism approach meditation? Um, is, is there a kind of a unique way to do that versus how other practices seem to, to discuss and implement it? So, um, I, you know, I hesitate to really try to talk about other traditions too much because I, I really don't necessarily understand them. But having put that caveat in there that I, I'm doing my best, but yeah. I, I could be wrong. The way I see it is because I was initiated into Raja Yoga and into Hindu forms of meditation long ago in my life, and I value them. Um, here's the difference to me um, that uh, Sufism begins with the concept of a soul. In other words, in fact, let me back up with where that comes from. Sufism thinks of the world as essence and existence as essence and manifestation. Most of what we deal with in our spiritual life is manifestation, but is not essential. What might I mean by that? Well, if you're talking about a behavior, you're talking about a manifestation. But whatever is essential cannot be completely understood in a way that we can communicate to other people. And so if you've had what we would think of as a spiritual experience, then there are things about that experience that try as you might, you, you can't express. Maybe we've all felt the frustration of, well, no, it was more like this. And it was, and we struggle with that yet. It was real to us. and It was true to us. Why is it true? Because that experience 
touched our essential nature, our soul. And the language is a manifestation or the conceptualization is a manifestation. So when we work with our meditation, I'm trying to get the student to work with their manifested language and conceptualization to where they make a realization about their essence or their own soul. So the soul represents an eternal essence. It, it, it is us at the core level of exactly who we are. It is possessed of all qualities of every other soul, but their arrangement is unique to us. I am an individual because the way in which I am configured is essentially different. And uh, that, that the idea then of unveiling is to bring out what your soul is and what your differences are. So we meditate daily, and a usual meditation begins with uh, what we would loosely call an invocation. What it really means is we are formulating an intention to seek our essence. So one of these is the invocation my order uses says toward the one. The perfection of love, harmony, and beauty, the only being. United with all the illuminated souls who form the embodiment of the mystery, the spirit of guidance. We seek the essence and we seek the community and the manifestation. Having formed our intention, we usually go into our first level of, of uh, chanting exercises called wazifa. And uh, we will chant uh, often what are called the beautiful names. One's assigned often by our teacher, but not necessarily. And we begin to put ourselves into a space where we're going to focus on characteristics of, of ourselves, our essential self, or of the divine. Then we often have what's called fikr, which is deep breathing, which the breathing itself would resemble other traditions. But this is where I do my imaginal exercises. This is where we create soul space. I think that might be a little bit different. So other traditions have mantras, but we use specific qualities and characteristics. So the mantra is sound. Our, our, our words, our names are sounds, and they are important sounds, like, like it, that would be the case with, with sacred mantra words in other traditions. But they're also characteristics of our existence and our, our self. And so we try to awaken those, take them deep into breath, Open up the soul space and see what happens. Sometimes if, if I'm focused on a name like Karim, which in Arabic means generous one, something will come to mind where I haven't been generous and I need to go meet with someone and I need to fix it. Or something will come to mind where I've been beating up on myself, but I have been generous. Maybe it'll create a sense of, of love for my, my soul and, and a realization. So in every individual in that deep breathing place with those names in the imaginal world, we want to give voice to our soul. That's a major element of this, which is we need to listen to our real self. We, we need to pull this into our consciousness. So again, it doesn't come from the outside in. And what's inside the individual is inside to them because their soul and their experiences are absolutely unique. So does that kind of help that then every day we do that? Some days we do it longer, some days we do it shorter, and we never beat ourselves up because we miss a day. We just, you know, the poet Jalaluddin Rumi, I'll illustrate it with this, said, come be with us, whoever you are. Be you, you know, a wanderer, be you a lover of loss. Ours is not a caravan of despair, right? Even if you've broken your vows a thousand times, 
come be with us. Come, come be with us again. We're, we're optimistic inviters into soul space. And we never condemn. We, we want to engage in, in the beauty of your soul, the power of your soul, the truth of your soul. So, and the master's job is to try and help the student do that, not tell the student what to do. Okay, does that that kind of helps show that? We, so we do that every day. You could probably do it in as little as ten minutes, and as much as however long you want to go. Yeah, I mean, the, beautiful. I'll, I'll make a comment, and then I'll I'll let Britt ask the next question. But it, it seems, at least the way you're describing it, it it, it it's not a, a mechanism of shame, which I see a lot of religions use. Like you don't fit the box, you don't fit the mold. You need to compromise pieces of yourself to become just like us. And you seem to be pointing people um, to allowing diversity, allowing people to be different. You've mentioned that in your words just now. And uh, I find a lot of value when you allow people to show up different than the person next to them. And you're really just trying to help them be their best version of them rather than fit a cookie cutter mold. That is the epitome within other religions of what salvation looks like for you to achieve it. Right. And so I just want to say thank you for that. Yeah. Um, We just had Bart Campolo on a couple of weeks ago, and he has a religious community um, where he's at in Ohio, and he named it Caravan, I think, after um, it was after that poem. And that's one of his central, the poem you read was one of his central um, kind of scriptures for this group that he was trying to do. Anyway, um, from the point of view of a student, what was really powerful for me was I never had a spiritual mentor before who would just give me something to read. And you had genuinely no idea what would resonate with me and what didn't. Right. You, you had no idea. I didn't know it really either. And so it was this really beautiful relationship of back and forth where you'll assign me a a meditation or something to read or something to consider. Or I'll say, I I really want to study this with you, or I really want to explore this. And we'll do it in the language that I resonate with more. And so when David and I talk, we use um, a lot more secular language than some of his other students who feel more comfortable with more religious language. Because it's the sense that the language doesn't matter, right? Because it's it's this mirror. It's this, it's this daily practice of mirror, of looking at yourself every day, meeting yourself every day, touching into your deepest truest, most loving self every day, um, whatever language that is and whatever path that takes. And so it was, it was totally new. You know, it was, I, I got a glimpse of it when I was a student of yours, you know, as a young adult, and then now working with you as, as a student, um, it's, it, it was just so different than, than what we usually get from organized religion. So talk to us a little about, uh, a little bit about, um, universal Sufism. Okay. And what that is. Yeah, so uh, I, the kind of Sufism I practice is unaffiliated with any particular tradition and can be affiliated with every religious tradition. We, this, this universal Sufi movement uh, was brought to the Western world, we might call it, to Europe and North America by um, a Sufi master from India named Inayat Khan. He's called Hazrat, which means saint or a holy person, Hazrat Inayat Khan. And uh, he came in the early 19, around 1911, died in 1927. 
but uh, tried to introduce people in the West to Sufism. Uh, his master had said, you need to go do this, uh, basically. And so, but he knew that he couldn't bring Islamic Sufism and expect it to find any traction in the West. You know, the idea that you have to become a, a Muslim to have access to spirituality was not on his in his game plan. So um, I guess you could say that adherents of all religions, as well as those with no religious affiliation, and, and, and uh, you know, we just uh, had Bill saying that he identified as an atheist. Uh, I don't know what that means because only Bill knows what that means to Bill. I mean, I can use the word atheist, but but then he said about spirituality and things and being a better person. And so with a, a, a master would want to work with, with someone like Bill and Bill with a master and, and kind of tease out what that really means for him. So in universal Sufism, we don't, we don't have any labels. We don't say you're this, you're that, you're the other. And... Uh, People from each tradition find themselves home within universal Sufism. And uh, it's not inclusive or not, it's not exclusivist, it's inclusivist. And so uh, Hazri Nayakhan said this, the purpose of the universal Sufi movement is to work towards unity. This is its social purpose, its spiritual purpose we've already been talking about. Its main object is to bring humanity, divided as it is, into so many different sections closer together in the deeper understanding of life. So when I gave you that invocation, the first part was toward the one, the perfection of love, harmony, and beauty, the only being. That's the nature of the existent, the real, the divine, the truth, whatever we want to call it, the names fail. And the next line says, united with all the illuminated souls who form the embodiment of the mystery. So universal Sufism doesn't try to say the divine is anything. Names are almost irrelevant. God, Allah, Buddha, whatever we, Shakti, whatever, whatever we're going to call, or Shanti, whatever we're going to call these begin to, uh, begin to fail. So we don't worry about that. We allow the person to conceive of the divine any way they want. And then we want to unite with other persons, which is soul to soul, so that we 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 really do have a social aspect that is based upon love and respect for each soul and the difference, the absolute difference of each soul, and to love that that difference and to love the contribution of each soul and the community of each soul. So does that kind of universal Sufism doesn't say what the divine is and it doesn't say what you are. That's a process of discovery and unfolding. And so we we want it's it's available to everybody. Okay. Yeah. Is that yeah, what I really liked is you've allowed me, this is something that's come up as as you've been my official um, guide here and I've been a student is, is you've really asked me to kind of come up with what the divine is for me, right? Which was, which was difficult at the beginning. It was something that we went back and forth a few times. And an analogy that you and I have been working with is I really love people who listen to this podcast know that I'm a beekeeper and I really love my bees. <laughs> I really love those dang bees. Anyway, I really love um, it's something it's an analogy that came to me that uh, an individual bee is almost nothing. And, you know, they live 45 days. 
Um, but the hive lives on and on and it touches all the flowers and plants in the area and the earth needs them. And they're so interconnected and they're so important and they dance, you know, to one another and the hive and all that the hive does is so much bigger than one individual bee. Right. And that to me was an analogy that I could meet when we're talking about something like God. Right. And so what I really loved about universal uh, Sufism is I could come with whatever way that I'm meeting that word, which is mm. for me, not very supernatural, but still really beautiful and profound and still really teaches me things. Right. Um, and I could bring that to a Sufi group where we do these meditations together and I could meet other people with their analogies for the divine or whatever that is, whatever it is that connects us all together. Um, and we could do these meditations like a tree of life and mine looked a certain way when I went into that space, my children were playing on it and it was safety mm. for my children. That was really what came to my mind as mm. you're working with these symbolisms. Sometimes your subconscious, we know this from psychology that our subconscious can mm. speak in symbolism a lot easier than it can speak in words. Right. And so I was able to do all this in community and I didn't have to accept anyone else's version of God mm. that didn't resonate with me, yeah. but I could still be in community with other people. And that was what was really beautiful for me. I'm pleased. It, uh, yeah. It's connected to, and again, by the way, if you want to comment on that, feel free to just stop me and I'll, um, the only thing I would say really quickly yeah, is please. just very passing. All relationships have to be based upon love. And you could say Sufism is the cultivation of love. And so we say that the student teaches the master, not the master, the student. And what that means by that is when you go through that Britain, you share your beehive analogy or your, your thoughts, your tree of life. When you do that, you are teaching me about myself and about you. And so my love for your soul increases each time we do this. And so I would just say that we have to understand that Sufism should proceed, it, the universal Sufi tradition in particular should proceed from love, can only proceed from love. And the moment we say the divine God, Allah, Buddha, whatever, doesn't like you when you do this or is, gets up and leaves the room because you're watching the movie they don't want to watch or anything, the divine does not go anywhere. The divine is ever present I may go someplace. I may ignore the divine, but that's me not listening to love. And so on the personal level and on my own spiritual level, I'm, I'm learning how to love. I'm learning how to peel away the things that are getting in the way of that. And that's, I would just say that in, in, yeah. in, in moving ahead. And I learn a lot from you. Yeah. I do. I do love that because we have had, people on this podcast who say God to me is love and Sufism is like, great, fantastic. God is love. It is. Bill, go ahead. Just that, so you and others have made this connection that Sufism is a, is connected to Islam or the Muslim tradition, correct? Yes. And yet the Muslim tradition very much at least in most of its aspects, would point people to more rigidity. Here's the Quran. This is the word of God uh, as one example. Ethics, right? Ethics first. Here's how yeah. you should behave. Theology, knowledge, second. 
than whatever happens later. So I would say that's the true of any tradition. It's to me what upset Jesus about the Pharisees. Yeah. And, yeah. and so my question yeah. is you're posing, a, a, you're conceptualizing a spirituality that doesn't require me to adhere to anything that's Islam or Muslim. That's correct. And and if I find wisdom in other text and am appalled by what I read in the Quran in places, I'm free to set it down and go somewhere Absolutely. else. Absolutely. And man, I just I wanna I wanna flesh that out a little bit. Talk for a moment about how Sufism gives that kind of room rather than adhering to the tradition from which it came from. Okay, there are some traditional Sufi groups that have been in existence for hundreds of thousands of years that are very much tied to the Quran and are very much tied to, but in the universalist tradition, that's not our emphasis at all because being a wisdom tradition, whatever is wise, well, whatever is wise is what awakens your soul, yeah. right? It, it yeah. doesn't, there isn't like, here's the canon of wise stuff and here's the canon of unwise stuff, right? It's whatever awakens your soul is the wisdom you need. And so we're not going to impose something on you because I don't know what your soul needs. I would say most people don't know what their soul needs. So the process of awakening is figuring that out. And if you go, you know, I really don't want that, then we go, fine. I've had some people say, I really didn't like the Quranic stuff. And they'll come back years later and they'll go, wow, there's a lot in that book that really inspires me. And you're going, well, we're so it's not like you're in one place all the time either. It's like as we spiritually mature, we gain the ability to navigate ambiguities or to say, well, that's kind of an acculturation I have, not a spiritual you know, reality. It's sort of like how I grew up and was trained. So um, in, our, in our tradition, again, we, we open up to anybody who wants to belong and, and we participate and we don't, we don't try to nail down specific things. That said, I find tremendous inspiration in the Quran, but but let me tell you why. Because I, 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 I mean, I, Arabic is my research language. And so, I mean, I can, I, I do these things. Some of my writing has been on comparative scripture with the Quran. But we read scripture quite differently than you would probably read in a formal church setting. So I'll just give you a brief example. Because I'm, I'm LDS. I don't mean to be overly Mormon here. But let me tell you, you know, just speak for a second from my own tradition, uh, which is there's a story of a man named Lehi who has a dream about a tree of life. Now you can see already that's going to fit into your tree of life conceptualization. There's many traditions that envision the soul as a tree of life, not just the Judeo-Christian. So, but the first thing that happens there is this man named Lehi says, I beheld myself that I was lost. That is the essential characteristic of how we want to read wisdom texts, including the Quran or the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Bhagavad Gita, whatever. We want to read those as saying, if they teach me to behold myself, if they unveil my soul to my consciousness, then that's the work they're designed to do. And so we would read that whole Lehi Tree of Life story probably in many respects completely different than what would happen in a formal educational setting. And so we accept all these books because they go, they're going to teach you what they teach you. And, and if they can introduce you to your soul, they're beneficial, all of them. Uh, and so if the Quran isn't working for somebody, then fine. 
you know, if they if they decide that they can find what, uh, yeah, any rate, in the, one of the old Superman movies, Lex Luthor says to his sidekick, some people read War and Peace and find it quaint. Others read the ingredients on a gum wrapper and unveil and unravel the secrets of the universe. If a gum wrapper is the sacred text that works for you, then we will read the gum wrapper together. <laughs> does that does that make sense? And so there are some that are that are tied to a tradition, but we look at what does the text do for the soul, and I can't ever predict what one text will do for one soul to the other. And so instead, we we leave it wide open for the person to to pursue on their own. Did that kind of answer your question? Yeah, and I would just add that it it seems as though your um, your idea of Sufism, the, the, the Sufism that you're talking about today, wouldn't impose any kind of literal interpretation of anything. It would allow people to individually figure out what works for them and to point Correct. them again to, to inside them to figure all that out. Correct. No, yeah, literal is irrelevant because, yeah. see, it's this quest to find some truth that can be stated out there that's universal to everybody that we would say, well, you can't do that, right? Because people come at, at things from their own experience. So what the, word, the words I'm reading mean to one person as they read to another person have culture and experience. They have all kinds of layers to them. So I'm not going to demand that you accept my layering and my experience. So the, the literal, the literal read of a scripture would denude it of all spiritual benefit. And it becomes a process of beating people up until they agree, either agree with your interpretation or they, they head out. And that's, there's no, there's no point in that. So we don't look for, okay. So it, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life, which for Sufis is, Sufis love Jesus among many other people of many traditions, but they would say the way is Jesus is Jesus is the way, not mimic Jesus and you'll be in the way, not literally interpret Jesus and you'll be in the right way. You look at how Jesus will say to one group of people, you're a bunch of hypocrites. We'll look at another person who mercy and tenderness, go thy way and sin no more how he might look at another group and say, where's my whip? The, the beauty of what Jesus does is that his approach is based upon loving those people and telling them what he thinks they need to hear. And spiritual discernment. He senses at a different level. And so when someone says you have to be Christ-like, I'm like, well, that's a way of being. That's not a way of, of acting. And it's it's a consciousness. It's not so a Sufi would simply say when Jesus says, I am the way, basically what a Sufi would say is look how he shows it to us in diversity of his approaches to the people in life, as individuals in many cases, sometimes as groups, Pharisees, etc. But but anyway, I would just pause on that for a second and say that even if we were to literalize Jesus' words, what's the point? Second comment really quickly is oftentimes religions will not only say, Jesus said, I am the way, the religion will say, and I'm the only one that can tell you what that means. You see, so it becomes a power relationship. Does that make sense? In other words, not only did Jesus say that, and literally, as if the King James Version has any literality to it, but we could take what he's saying literally, but then we make it a power relationship. I'm the only one that can tell you exactly what that means. 
love relationships don't do that. Does that mm-hmm. kind of make sense? So literalism doesn't work for us on many, 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 many levels. And uh, yeah, you know, it I reminds me. Oh, yeah, I was, it reminds I was in me Sunday of school things. the other day. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just saying no, I was in Sunday go. school the other day in somebody a Sunday school, and we were reading the New Old Testament. And someone said, Well, from the apocryphal book of, of whatever, and I, I just turned to my wife and I said, I think the whole Old Testament is apocryphal. <laughs> we don't know where any of this really came from. So I, I was gonna say is why be literal? So I just want to finish with that thought. And I'm sorry to interrupt you, Britt, on that, but finish with that thought that literalism is a is a chimera, it's it's an illusion. It's a delusion for some. It 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 doesn't exist. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> it just it reminds me of when I was a student and I I didn't have a sense then, you know, I'm just I'm just a kid really, but we were doing, you know, we would read the scriptures together in class or um Dante's Divine Comedy or whatever the text was. It really didn't matter what the text was in mm. history class whatever, and we would always be doing deep soul work with it, right? And then I'd go to my religion classes and I'd think, wow, I'd really love this. Maybe I just really want to get into religion. And so I'd go over to the religion classes and I would just, I didn't understand why. I really thought I was broken. I was like, I cannot do these religion classes. I am banging my head on the wall. This is not awakening my soul. This is just making me angry. Um, But I loved, and it's not that I didn't love scripture. I loved scripture. I just loved the soul work that we were doing with scripture rather than making some kind of power struggle path thing that was happening in my other religious classes. And then the second thing is one of the things that was really healing for me is as I became a student and I was initiated and I've shared this with other people, the temple experience for me was really spiritually damaging. It was really, um, it, it, it was just traumatic in many ways. And some of that is because of, of the power thing, right? And what you have to do as a woman in order to kind of find your voice in this in this place, in this temple, in this system, and how much you have to kind of quiet your soul uh, because your soul is, you know, not resonating with some of this. And it was, and so for a long time, you know, that a, a kind of ritual or sacred places or teacher-student relationships, way too traumatic. Like Mm. I was way too triggered. And so something that was really healing for me is to redo a kind of spiritual uh, relationship where it was based on love and not power was very healing in and of itself Mm. without any, even without, you know, all the cool stuff that we got to do. Um, because it was really healing to see, oh, this is what a religious ritual looks like when love is the driving force and not power forcing me onto this path. Right. And so, um, there was a couple women here who have had pains, you know, pains from patriarchy. And so to see kind of what a teacher student mentor, a healthy teacher student mentor relationship looks like in the realm of spirituality can be very, it can heal some of those really deep wounds. And I know that that's been true for me and some of the other women in the area who have, who've undergone the same thing because patriarchy can really damage a lot of that. You know, when you speak of of power relationships and loving relationships, I think I would invite a person to read the, the sayings and doing attributed to their their traditions, uh, core person personality in Christianity. Go back and see what 
for example, Jesus did, or go back and try to understand Muhammad as, as love in his life rather than power. A lot of times when I go into a religious setting, they want to deal with a personality like Jesus. It's about power. And I'm going, that's not how I read or understand what's going on there. It's more, I would encourage people to reconfigure maybe their engagement with these, these religious personalities based upon love. Is that maybe responsive to what you're talking about? In other words, we want to buy out of the power relationship altogether. So this, my notion is the only authority that you have in your life is your soul. There is no other authority. And it annoyed the people of Jesus' day, for example, if you take his example. He speaks as one having authority, and I'm going, well, what else is he going to do? Because he wasn't quoting other people and using power, saying, well, you know, some religious figure, pick who it is, a, a preacher or, a, a, you know, a mullah or whatever, they said you have to do this. Well, that's a power relationship. Instead, a lot of what's happening there is an invitation to find your own authority. Sufis call it the book of self. We are writing a book. And I'm writing it every time I experience, every time I express. I'm writing the book of self. If there is any judgment in my life or beyond my life or someplace, what am I going to use as a standard of judgment? The only thing I have is myself. The only thing I have is my own experience. And so it, it's a matter of uncovering yourself and allowing love to lead yourself because it really is all you have. The rest of it is illusion to a certain degree and it's power. So, and I, I know you brought up the condition that the spiritual trauma that people can have by gender or not by gender, but I mean, through gender relationships, which are power relationships often. And, and we see that there can be a great deal of harm done to people because we approach our ourselves and others through power and not through love. That's so interesting, that mm -hmm. argument that you just said, because it's so often an atheist argument. I've heard Christopher Hitchens say this argument and Sam Harris say this argument, because when a when they're debating a Christian fundamentalist, the fundamentalist will say, you know, if we don't have the Bible telling us what's what's right and wrong, then we have no morality. And so, you know, the atheist crowd will say, well, how do you know to follow this scripture and not the slavery scripture or not the genocide scripture? And they'll say, oh, well, you know, you can tell that that this is true and this leads me towards good things. And then this probably doesn't. And it's like, well, then it's not the Bible that's giving you the morality. It's the book of self. Right. That's and it. so that's so often an atheist argument. So it's so interesting to hear it from to hear that argument from a Sufi perspective. So let's let's move to just kind of tell us your story about how you got into Islamic okay. studies and found Sufism and what it kind of did for you. So kind of go through your story now, now okay, that we I'll kind of get a sense of what Sufism is. Well, yeah, historically, I would at least say Sufism is uh, in, its, in, in its current manifestations. Um, so I grew up on the Wasatch Front. I was born in Salt Lake. I grew up mostly in Orem, Utah, uh, with a three-year hiatus in Phoenix or Tempe, Arizona, and uh, came back, lived in Sandy, Utah, moved to Idaho in the early 1990s, taught at BYU-Idaho. So, I mean, I'm, I've, I've existed in sort of this, this uh, Mormon milieu that, that would determine a lot of my perspectives and things like that. When I grew up as a young boy, um, I... I misinterpreted the name of the state of Israel to mean like it was the state of Israel in the Bible, the kingdom of Israel. And so I had this kind of politicized 
uh, conceptualization of the Middle East and of Islam and these things that I sort of inherited. And uh, I actually remember watching parts of the Six Day War on the news and Israel was beating up all the Egyptians, et cetera. And I'm going, that's the hand of God Almighty. You know, I mean, this is and, and of course, the truth of all these things, no matter what perspective we take, is it's far more complex on all sides. But but uh, uh, getting away from kind of that, when I was in high school, we did a model United Nations and we were my school was a larger school. Uh, Brighton High School. I think I had over 700 people in my graduating class and we could take on bigger projects. We were assigned every Arab nation and I was given the PLO to represent as observer status to the UN. So now I had to go learn all this about the other side. And as I did, I realized how little I understood and how much I had inherited. And as I did that, I began to fall in love with the Arab Middle East, its civilization, its culture, its achievements. And that's launched me on a, um, an investigation of this. Then when I went to serve an LDS mission, I remember in my own little heart saying, you know, God, if you want to send me someplace, I will go. I'm, I want to be a servant. I want to learn how to be a servant. But if you could send me to someplace where this civilization had been, where these people could be found, who I'm learning to love, I would like that. And I was sent to the Seville, Spain mission. I was sent to the only mission in the world in which I was in the heart of what had been Islamic for over 700 years. And I learned to love the Moorish influence and I learned to love. So then I came back from my mission. I got my bachelor's degree in history. I studied Arabic. Uh, I studied Arabic in Tunisia for a short time and things like that and uh, moved down that road and, and uh, have a master's degree in Middle East studies. And then I have a, a doctorate in a PhD in history uh, and uh, so I've pursued that degree. My PhD was in economic history. I did mortgage banking of all things in the Middle East. So, I mean, it was like, who cares? <laughs> I realized one day, so I could go, I don't even care about this stuff really. And so I began to gravitate back toward religious studies uh, before you, before we met and, um, and, and really went back into my Sufi studies. I've been studying the great Sufi authors all the way along this educational path. But uh, as I did that, um, I learned how to speak about it at BYU-Idaho, which for me was quite a trick. How to advocate a spiritual path uh, without falling afoul of uh, certain values and, and, and measures that were in place institutionally. But I tried to do that at every chance I got to introduce students to themselves and to allow them to express themselves and have their own ideas about their spirituality and, um, and I pursued that path and then um, lived in Egypt in 2004 and began to work with Sufis more in the Egyptian scene. And my wife and I lived there for a while. And then I had a Fulbright uh, Nehru grant to lecture at the University of Delhi in India in 2010 and 11. And while I was there, I said, I want to meet South Asian mystics. I was introduced to a dear friend named Salman Chishti, uh, who is um, a, a master of what's called the Chishtiya order of Sufis in Ajmer, India. We became dear friends, and then he took me on a whirlwind tour of the great Sufi personalities of the world. He introduced me to my current master, Shabda Khan. He introduced me to Jonathan Granoff, a Sufi who runs the Global Security Institute and who writes speeches for Nobel Peace laureates and so on and so on. I just found myself being introduced to this world, and I wonder, what am I supposed to do with it? And the answer came back, you're supposed to serve and love with it. That's what you're supposed to do. And so uh, I was initiated formally in Istanbul 
3 a.m. with the blue mosque lit up all in the background and had a beautiful initiation. And then as I worked with my, my master, Shabda Khan, uh, who lives in Ring County, um, California, near San Francisco, as I, as I worked with him, uh, some of my students, when I went toward retirement at BYU-Idaho, came up and said, you've talked about Sufism. I need this in my life. I, I, I don't like myself or I have whatever they would call it, things like same-sex attraction, or I have, I, I don't know who I am, and I go to church and I feel like I'm wrong. I'm just wrong. You mentioned kind of broken. I feel like I'm broken. I feel like I'm wrong. And I want you to be my Sufi master. And I'm going, I'm not a guide. So I talked to Shabda about it. And he said, we should have made you a guide a long time ago. And then, and then did the initiation so that I could take on my own students. I committed to the ethical path of our order, which is to always respect the soul of the other person, to always put them first. And uh, since then, my life has been filled with loving and joyous relationships from all over the world. I just got back from California and a new student in Bakersfield. And it's just been a constant enrichment for me. So that's kind of my path academically, my path in terms of Sufism. So I always studied Sufism but I wasn't a Sufi. And until I became a Sufi, I didn't get it, right? That's what I'm talking about. The intellectual assent to the value of Sufi principles is quite different than the experiential path of becoming a Sufi. And that's where the true beauty kicks in. Is that yeah. answer? I have okay. a question for you, a question that I've never asked of, I've never asked you, which is kind of fun. Um, your journey reminded me a little bit. Uh, Bill and I have a mutual friend who runs a thoughtful faith, uh, Gina Colvin, and she um, uh, she ended up kind of finding her spiritual home in the community of Christ. Mm -hmm. Just this powerhouse, feminine. Um, you know, she's got a degree in theology and just this amazing powerhouse of a woman. And she really wanted to kind of redo her baptism. So she went and she kind of went out with a woman. It was like the middle of the night under the moon and did a kind of ocean ritual that was meaningful to her between her and Jesus. I don't know. I It's not my experience, so I can't really speak to it. But the reason I bring it up is um, it was really sacred for her. And she ended up receiving some discipline for it because mm -hmm. uh, specifically LDS discipline or correct. church of Christ. Yeah, yeah. LDS, LDS discipline. Okay. And so I'm curious, uh, because the initiation, it's not a baptism, but it gets a little sticky as far as who has the power to do these sorts of things, right? If you were to ever receive church discipline, for being initiated in a different spiritual path, would that would that anger you? Would that hurt you? Would that be? Would you just shrug your shoulders and say, "This is what institutions do"? You know, how would you react to that? Well, that's a great question, and and if you proceed from the path of love, you're going to arrive at a different answer than I would have arrived at ten years ago. I would have been horrified. To be disciplined. Uh, I've had in the LDS tradition these what we call callings that involve me in exercising judgment toward other people, and they always disturbed me. And I always wanted to find out as much as I could about the person and what they were going through, rather than here's the principle, you violated it, you're in, you're out, you're up, you're down, you're whatever. 
Uh, I felt uncomfortable with those, although I had been involved in several. And so how to apply that to myself? Um, so here's what I've transformed into. I have talked with my wife about this and such. Uh, first of all, it would hurt my feelings because I think what I'm trying to do is of the essence of what uh, uh, should be uh, the institutional position that we should always be. We shouldn't worry about the institution. We should worry about the soul. And I think too many times we start worrying about the institution and we get a conflict of interest. I, I might say to myself, well, I'm doing this discipline because that's what needs to happen for this person's soul, which is not a Sufi thing, right? Because I'm going, I don't know what needs to happen to that person's soul. And I ought to be there with them. If they want me there with them, I ought to be there with them, not kicking them out or whatever. And I'm not trying to over-criticize. I'm just saying for me, but um, it would hurt my feelings, and and I would hope that um, that I would be able to shoulder those feelings. I do have feelings about it, but I have talked with my in my church a bishop. I've talked with the stake president. They are people I know. I tell them what I do. I tell them I initiate people. Here's what's involved in the initiation. Here's what's not involved in the initiation. It doesn't say anything about their faith or their religion or their commitment. That is their decision to make completely. And I don't think I say anything that undermines their faith or their commitment or their tradition. I don't tell them what to do in any respect, let alone it breaks a commandment or whatever. That's not my job. And I think I'm in a pretty good place where I'm at. Now, if I move to a different place, I might find a different experience because we, we kind of pretend that everything's one institution, but it's not. You know, uh, I, I had a dear friend who had a particular situation, taught at BYU-Idaho for a while, and had worked out with, with the bishop how to deal with the family situation, how to deal with the spouse that had resigned from the church, and how to, how to be qualified to teach at BYU-Idaho ecclesiastically. And it was great with that bishop. Got a new bishop. He was terminated. The bishop said, you can't. So what happens when you have an institution a religious institution, a figure who from a, a, a from the university perspective is randomly chosen, from a inst university institutional perspective, who can reach into your spiritual life and terminate you from your employment. That is painful. That's when that happens. My conclusion is no one can separate me from the divine. No one can separate me from my family. No one can separate me from my friends. No one can separate me from any of those loving relationships that I have in my life. But if someone insists that they can do it, well, I guess then they think they can do it. But the truth of the matter is I value my religious life, but I can't control what other people are going to say that life should be. And I've come to terms with that. Is that helpful? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, Someone has someone commented on the side here, and I think it's I think it's a comment that we should address because I think other listeners are going to have this comment too. The comment says, "I don't feel that spirituality needs to uh, have initiation to be legitimate, right?" So Great let's um, let's reframe this and talk about what is it about initiation that is different than legitimizing. The initiation is mostly, I believe, for the guide more than more even than the student. Because when I when I have initiation with a student, for me, I view it as my commitment to their soul. And I view it as forever. 
if a student doesn't like me or gets angry with me or says, I don't want to have anything to do with you or leaves or whatever, in my heart, I still am concerned about their happiness. Not as I see it, but I hope they're happy in the way they feel. So I agree that the initiation, it isn't even really required. But what it is for me is another level of commitment that I, it's not just a casual relationship, that it is a spiritually committed relationship on my part. So I don't view it as institutional and we don't even in our order view it as necessary. It's for those, some, some of the people that I work with aren't initiated. Uh, and I work with them very closely still. Others find that they finally say, I want to be initiated. Okay. And the initiation is that, that I give them our Sufi name, meaning we will be known as that. And the name for me that I choose is a reflection of what I see as their spiritual qualities. The student I most recently initiated is Sufi name is Abdul Haq, which means the servant or the devotee of reality. And then I ask them to meditate on that name and tell me what they think that means for them. Uh, do you mind if I disclose anything about you, Brett? Brit, Brit is such a fiercely real, devoted, and true uh, soul who happens to be uh, female. So I picked a female name. When I say happens to be, what I'm saying is I'm trying not to make judgment out of that. So uh, so I, uh, based on gender. And so I gave you the name Rabia after Rabia al-Basri or Rabia al-Adawiyah, an 8th century Sufi woman who was just this wonderful, fierce, spiritual powerhouse. And so your name for me was peculiar to the qualities that I saw in you. And it's the same for, I have another student named Rahmana, which has to do with love. But it's the kind of love that expresses itself through charitable acceptance. And on and on. So we could go through this. So the initiation, I give a name, and that name means something to me because it is an expression of what I see in their soul. So second of all, the initiation means that I'm, I'm committed to them, but committed to what? To the fulfillment of their happiness and their joy, to their fulfillment of self-realization. And I will dedicate time. If they call me at 3 a.m., I'm going to take time with them at 3 a.m. Because this is a person I've joined to some degree on their spiritual path. Now, does it mean anything besides that? No. Are there dues to pay? No. Are there, you know, we don't, you, you, if you want to go to another teacher, go to another teacher. I'd hopefully be the first person to say, can I introduce you to someone? Do you want to find someone or you want to go on your own? Whatever. In other words, there's nothing binding about it. Ultimately, it's simply a statement of a status of commitment, especially on my part. Was that helpful? It's not a yeah. ritual, it's not a baptism. Yeah, but it is it, it is really representative of this reframing that we've been talking about over and over. I was really sad, for example, when um, I didn't seal my, my last two adopted children are not sealed to me, and that was really painful. Mm -hmm. And I wanted a ritual where my tribe could gather together and do something to say, we don't just, yeah, you have a child, I love you. I wanted my tribe to come together and really show a commitment that they're there for this child as if it was my biological child, yeah. but it no longer felt comfortable to do that. And in the temple, jump through these hoops in order to get that way. Mm -hmm. And so my soul still deeply mourns that I didn't get, I didn't have a ritual that my family would show up at that would mean that. And so 
you know, that, that even still hurts now to think about, but I really loved, yeah, this reframing of, of ritual and initiation, not as a power, not as a jump hoops to get to heaven, but as something that just helps you to commit, right? Because mm. that's the opposite problem that we run into is that when you throw away everything from organized religion, you're going to throw away things that were actually helpful, like rituals are helpful, committing yeah. to each other as human beings and holding hands on each other's path. That's very helpful. But if it's only been given to you in this power dynamic, then you're going to throw away a baby in a, in the bathwater there, which is why I really wanted to go into that question. Bill, did you have something there? Yeah. I wanted to put up a, another comment from uh, a little bit ago. Uh, and I want to ask a question off of it too. So you, we can answer this question and then I want to ask one, which is this version of spirituality seems like something I'd like to look further into. Is there literature on universal, universal Sufism that would be a good introduction? And then, if you'll follow that up by speaking to does Sufism uh, have a mode to collect wisdom? In other words, books with quotes or stories um, that perhaps do it the way you're showing, which is not to tie it directly to any specific religious text or uh, in other words, if I want to be a secular Buddhist, which I'm actually very attracted to, although I don't mm. consider myself that per se, but there are places to go to learn the concepts of Buddhism and the wisdom that's been shared over centuries without an allegiance to Buddha and in, in that as a religion. How does Sufism handle wisdom and collecting it? And then I'll let you answer this question on the screen first. Okay, so um, I think it's a great question that's being asked here. Where do we turn for things? Let me make a generic observation on the question from the wisdom tradition perspective to begin with, which is most wisdom traditions are going to involve a guide-student relationship. And we find this whether we're looking at, you know, early Chinese concepts of spirituality. Uh, I'm a big lover of the book Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, and it talks about that, or the yogic tradition. Uh, in which you have you have you have your your guru and etc. And so most wisdom traditions have a transmission that is in a highly personalized form, if that makes sense. In other words, the, the first observation would be um, that uh, the tradition isn't full, complete, whole without the individual engagement. Does that make sense? Um, and so when we read about it, it gets put into words and words are always dicey. So uh, it's not, Sufism really isn't very much, not that this person suggesting it in a question, I don't mean to say that, but just make the point, it's, it's really not a do-it-yourself kind of project. Let me tell you why. The main veil, if we were to say the great veil over our soul to ourselves could be given the name ego a construct that we use to avoid traumas and to assert ourselves in the world. And it's not necessarily what a psychologist might call the ego, but it is this sense of I-ness that we create for a variety of reasons, many out of traumas or, or all sorts of things. And so if we do a do itself a self project, what we, uh, what we are doing is putting our ego in charge of finding our soul, which involves dissolving the ego. Right? The only way to find your soul is dissolve your ego, so to speak. 
And so you're putting your ego in charge of getting rid of your ego. And, and so most wisdom traditions say you need a loving, caring engager there who can, can help you to along that process. So that being said, the, the guidance, individual guidance is at the core of these traditions. Uh, I think what uh, you could look at several uh, books on the subject of universal Sufism. Um, <clears throat> one of the books that we use as a kind of a manual is called Physicians of the Heart. It's written by my master and a number of other people with my order called the Sufi Ruhaniyat International. It's part of the International Sufi Universalist Movement. Uh, it does use a lot of reference to the Quran and to Arabic because that's the tradition it came out of. But there's nothing in any of those references that means you have to believe in the Quran or follow it. It can be reinterpreted and applied in any, in any degree or any method. Um, another... Uh, there's another couple of books that might be uh, very helpful. Um, I'm just looking around at what ones would be um, maybe the most accessible to us. Well, I'll give you a book that all Sufis love. Any of the poetry of Jalaluddin Rumi is highly instructive from a Sufi. It's very instructive. In fact, Rumi never wrote his poetry down. It was always copied by disciples, right? Because he just, in fact, he said, when I'm in this place giving this poetry, I don't really even know what I'm doing. I'm just kind of a conduit for something. And so reflection on the poetry of Rumi is a good idea, or the poetry of Hafiz, or the poetry of Shabastari, or the poetry of Ferdowsi, or the poetry. There's all these, these books that are exceptional sort of manuals, and most Sufis look at the Masnavi or Mathnawi, it's called, of Rumi as a Sufi book and a Sufi guide. Um, there are um, some other books that deal with Sufism in a more academic sense. Syed Hussein Nasser, N-A-S-R, who uh, is a Sufi that teaches at George Washington University, or did teach, he may be retired, uh, wrote several great treatises on Sufism that are more academic. Um, you could read uh, Anne-Marie Schimmel's The Mysticism of Islam, uh, although it deals with it more broadly than Islam, is, is kind of like the handbook of the history of Sufism. Uh, if you consult Fons Vitae, F-O-N-S, new word V-I-T-A-E, uh, publishers, uh, they have a whole section on Sufism. It's among the most excellent books you could read on Al-Ghazali, Ibn Arabi, these powerful Sufi personalities. Um, the Islamic, uh, well, uh, what's another one I'm thinking of? So you have Fons Vitae, um, well, there's a, a, a number of publishers that are going to... Oh, Classics of Western Spirituality from Paulist Press. You can read about like early Sufism. You can read about... I was just looking at one of those books just now, and I think it was called The Early Sufis. Those are all very good books. The one, though, that is a manual of how to be a Sufi is Physicians of the Heart. So is that helpful? Yeah, you're muted, Bill. Yeah, Physicians of the Heart is a great a great place to start. I know Thomas McConkie refers to that book a lot. He's he's I I feel like he's he's doing with Buddhism and Mormonism with what you're doing with with um, Sufism and Mormonism. There's we some similarities there. We've read that book together, by the way. I've been in Thomas's yeah. house, seeing his beautiful wife, all these wonderful yeah. people, and we're reading Physicians of the Heart together. And so that he shows refers you how, to it. Yeah, he refers to it a lot. I would, yeah, we I cross boundaries continually. We don't think of them as boundaries. Right. So before we run out of time, 
I'm going to skip a couple questions because I really want to get to this question. I think it's really important. And I'm going to kind of take a minute to set this up here. Um, one of the things that's really beautiful in Sufism is a really um, beautiful sense of the feminine divine and working with it, not just for females, but for everyone, right? And it's something that came up that I've been thinking a lot about as I see clients, mostly female clients. And I'm going to read something um, as I set up this question here. Uh, this is from the book Wild Mercy, um, which is a book about uh, female mystics across history. And it says, every culture and tra religious tradition controlled by men has placed higher importance on scriptural study and ritual observance than on feeding babies and cleaning up after them. Women have internalized our own devaluation. Child rearing is arguably the most difficult possible spiritual path, a hero's journey that leads us on harrowing adventures, but for which we receive almost no credit. Um, family is the most powerful spiritual teacher I have ever known. It pokes you and wakes you up. It's easy to become complacent on the spiritual path to start thinking you know something and have freed yourself from your bad habits. No matter where you are in your practice, family can undercut your awakened state and pull you right out of the present moment. Mm. She acknowledged that when you have young children, it's almost impossible to maintain a spiritual practice. Your family has to be your practice and the opportunities for practicing are abundant. Mm. Don't be fooled. Most of the spiritual books that have influenced us were written by men in societies where women were not included. You've been programmed by a lot of dead men who had no idea what it was to be a woman. Mm. Women are learning to re-sacralize our ordinary embodied experience. We are no longer willing to wait for invitations from men's ancient elite clubs. We do not believe true spiritual experience is limited to these privileged spaces. Instead, we find the face of the Holy One in the faces of our babies and our lovers, our elders and our co-workers the dirty dishes and the deep quiet that falls over our homes when everyone is sleeping and we stand at the window looking at the moon. So the reason I want to share that is because every week we have some kind of spiritual guest and I get comments and messages from women who say, I really loved this. This really resonated with me, but I'm not a spiritual person and I don't have a spiritual practice because I'm home with my children. I get this every week every week from women and it's this it's this really subtle form of patriarchy it's not patriarchy in the sense that the organized religion is is uh it's it's patriarchy that happens outside of organized religion because even outside of that some of the wisdom traditions or or the holy books from the wisdom traditions they're still written by men and so it's this internalized message for women that a spiritual practice is sitting on a mat for 20 minutes, but ritualistically creating a dinner for the people that you will love and clean wiping off your counter the same way you wipe it off every night is not spiritual. That's just accept that's just expected, but that's not a spiritual path. That's not spirituality. And so when I talk with women literally every week and I say, what does your spiritual practice look like? They'll always say, well, I should meditate, but I don't. I should read more, but I don't because I'm too tired and I'm taking care of my kids every time. And so speak to us a little bit about how Sufism really talks about the feminine divine and how it really um, values kind of the embodied female experience as a spiritual path. Hmm. 
Well, uh, this is for me a very daunting thing to attempt, but let me see if I can approach this um, in a way that is fair and equitable, reasonable, insightful, caring, God willing, so to speak, uh, wise, <laughs> right? That perhaps something worth saying. So let's begin with this, which is um, the, the Sufi conceptualization of what we call the soul. The Arabic word is nafs, literally means the breath. Uh, whatever we call a soul knows the, our essential nature. Remember, we talked essence and manifestation. Our, our essential nature has no gender, has no none of these manifested or constructed qualities, whether they're cultural stru uh, structures or biological structures, etc. And so, every virtue or characteristic or or power or uh, that belongs to one soul belongs to all. It's just the uniqueness lies in the way in which they interact with each other and interact with our experience. And so when we talk about the sacred feminine, maybe this is a good analogy. Instead of talking about yin and yang, we want to talk about Tao. Because yin and yang are manifestations. Tao is an essence, right? And so if there is this feminine thing and this masculine thing, we could call yang and yin or whatever. If there are those manifested characteristics, they aren't the reality. They are the manifestations. So our first approach is to say, if you wanted to call some characteristic of service or, or love or nurturing, if we wanted to call those either unique to women or primarily female, etc., I think our first response would be, no, they are aspects of the soul. So they're in me as much as they're in anybody else. And so we want to separate them from manifestations of these things. Now, in terms of manifestations, I could say within uh, the Sufi path, there are prophetesses. There are many female Sufis that are very important. Although, again, because of the considerations of public life and the way societies are organized, mostly men, but uh, many of our great Sufis uh, have been female, etc., and uh, so prophetesses would include Eve, uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, Khadija, the wife of Muhammad, uh, Fatima, the daughter of Muhammad, um, Sophia, the feminine concept from the Greek tradition, uh, holy wisdom, so to speak, as a personification of the feminine quality, uh, much like the consolation of, of philosophy by Boethius, it appears in a female form, right? Wisdom uh, in a female form. And so, uh, Many of these are seen as equally important with men. In fact, in the Sufi path, Mary is as important as Jesus because Mary is the Jesus as essence is the manifestation. Jesus is the manifestation of the spiritual essence of Mary in a very real way for Sufi. We, we, we don't separate them any more than we should separate child and mother. Because the, 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 what the mother is doing in service is coming from her loving soul, you see. And so in doing that, essence is being received then. And so we would, we would think of Jesus and Mary as, uh, I don't want to say even a pairing because that divides them. They are a, a wholeness. They are a totality. So Sufis will talk about Mary. In my order, we, we celebrate Mary almost continuously. Equally with Jesus. In fact, if you read the Quran, Mary is more equal with, with Jesus in the Quran, and, and the Quran talks about Mary far more than the New Testament does. Uh, New Testament basically treats her like, well, she was a holy vessel that was supposed to show up, you know, her womb was supposed to show up with Jesus. And then she makes these occasional appearances here 
in many of these other sacred texts, the women are, are much more prominent. Now, that doesn't mean the societies that use those texts haven't reconfigured them patriarchally, but, but you find in the text that beauty and that truth and that meaning. So setting those aside, let's get to two things real quick. One tradition, Mary and Martha. I remember when I was doing uh, studying medieval history, I read some of the uh, treatises on Mary and Martha from the New Testament story uh, of Jesus uh, toward the end of his life when he's in Bethany in their home. And, and Martha's saying, can't, can't you help me, Mary? Look, at, I'm doing all the service, right? I'm changing the diapers. I'm fixing the meals. I'm washing the dishes. I'm setting the table. And I don't get to sit at Jesus' feet. And, and then, of course, the comment is Mary has chosen the better part. Now, I think I totally disagree with that. The way they were viewed in what I was reading is that they were a whole, that all of us in our life at times serve others, and at times we pursue our own spiritual welfare. And they, they treated Mary and Martha as one was day and the other was night. One was living an external life in the day. The other was living a life of contemplation at night. And so they had to be balanced with each other, even uh, as the saying Attributed to Jesus said, uh, you know, for now it is called day until the coming of Son of Man for mankind to perform its labors because the night's coming. And you don't work in the night. You think, you feel. So the, the moon associated then with contemplation, sun, with activity, etc. But they saw it as a balance. Does that make sense? Uh, and I would say that Martha is loving and serving in every respect you could ever say Mary was. In my own life, and I'll relate a very short anecdote. Uh, my wife and I had a, a daughter, my my first daughter, my second child, our second child, lived for 20 months and had her first surgeries at eight weeks, a liver disease, a devastating liver disease called biliary atresia. She was sick her whole life. She never gained more than 15 pounds. She never sat up and et cetera. It was, it was very difficult. And the time came when she had a catastrophic collision with, with uh, blood sepsis. And it was clear she was going to die. And and we were approached by doctors to have a transplant. You may, you need to decide if you're going to put her on a transplant list. And this was in 1984, early 1984. So liver transplants were like relative, comparatively recent and very difficult and harrowing to the recipient. So I went to lunch with my wife, Rachel. And of course, I'm like, I think I'm Mr. Masculine Dad. I have to fight for my child until the end. It's my job to, to give them every chance to live. It's my, this is my duty. So my love was very much this, I will stay the course. I will, etc. cetera, uh, in this outward manifestation, if you will. And then my wife, who had the powerful insight of a mother, said to me, I thought you you loved Elizabeth. Do you love Elizabeth? And I was devastated. I started weeping. How can you say, after all the months in the hospitals, out of all everything we've been with, how could you ask me if I love Elizabeth? And then she said, hasn't she been through enough yet? Hasn't she suffered enough? And I realized I did love Elizabeth, but not in a way that I needed her as mother to teach me to love Elizabeth. And that was in a very real way. I didn't want Elizabeth to die because I didn't want to face my own grief, but she was thinking of Elizabeth suffering with that new liver and all the rejection, anti-rejection drugs and, and all, and then, and then probably in all likelihood dying anyway. 
And so the voice of maternal love reached out from her and into my soul. And I realized that my kind of patriarchy dad thing, as powerful and as beautiful as it was, was incomplete. And I needed that feminine. That's the one thing patriarchy does not understand is we need balance and wholeness. And it's in our soul. We already have it. We just deny it. and We behave like it doesn't exist. So from the Sufi perspective, we not only should welcome women into our fold, we, we need women. We need everybody. We need every voice that can come to this and bring that wisdom. So I hope that's helpful to you to understand that the path needs to be one where we look at the soul, not at the manifestation. And when we do, we can peel away the differences between us and learn to love. Yeah, and I think it's really important. It was really empowering for me as we were reading. Um, you know, we've read various, you know, feminine scripture and various things to reclaim um to reclaim my home life as a spiritual path, which really, for whatever reason, I just missed it. Like I just didn't see it. I didn't see it because, because it's just not modeled in our society that that's a spiritual path. And it's so funny to me that men will go off to a retreat in India for three weeks and they'll get so praised. I sat on a mat and I worked with dissolving my ego. Right. And it's just like, oh, wow, that guy really knows what he's doing. Right. And then women quietly with no praise every night are cleaning up feces with their bare hands, with their mind screaming because they're so sleep deprived and they have to choose in that moment love for their child, even though their body is angry and they're you know, it's just chaos and you're cleaning throw up on the floor in the middle of the night and no one's watching. And we're going to praise the guy for going on a vacation to India and not see that the female cleaning up throw up. If you want to talk about dissolving your ego, you know, I went from being a history teacher and then I had children and I'm, I'm cleaning up body fluids that I didn't even know existed. <laughs> and you know, if you want to talk about dissolving your ego and choosing love, women do that all day, every day. And yet most that I meet have no idea that you can claim that as spirituality. Can I, can right? I make a brief comment on that? One Please. of the, one of the reasons is that almost all of my experience is within a woman's experience, especially, uh, right. But, but not all of a woman's experience is in my experience. And so as a result, when I talk about my experience, it's just going to probably exclude a woman's experience for a variety of reasons, mainly because I, I don't have I don't go, do things or go through things that uh, females do uh, either biologically or socially or and let alone in a family with children and all the rest of it. And so I need to learn to shut up and listen to this other perspective because it's it's uh, it's going to inform me. <laughs> It's going to help make me whole because I'm incomplete. So that's one observation. The second observation is it's easy to talk about the stuff that happens with men. You can write it in a nice little tight paragraph and you can wrap it up and say, oh, I went and sat on a mat for three weeks and became spiritually enlightened. But how do you do that with the daily life of an active mother with children? Yeah. So that's my response. Bill, do you have something to add there? Um, no, I mean, I, I, I don't want to get lost in the weeds here. Cause I, 
I think we'd all be on the same page addressing something like this. But I want to put a comment up. You know, because I'm sorry, but I don't buy into this. This sounds like sixty hippie stuff. I'm just expressing my opinion. Hold to the rod, but it's okay to go into the large, spacious building and blend Sufis with it. It's obviously coming from the context of someone. It feels like anyway. Maybe I could be wrong. Feels like somebody coming from the from inside orthodoxy within the faith that we all participated in at least at one time and to some degree still do at least in your case david mm -hmm. um it, all i guess i just want to speak to it which is everything that has been magical in my world in the last five to ten years has come by me letting go of the dogma of what others handed to me mm -hmm. and by diving deep into myself and figuring out who I was, or at least how my outward behaviors represented who I was and what I wanted, how I wanted to show up in the world. Right. Mm. And there's been a ton of work that's gone into that sometimes celebrating success and sometimes failing, but to an outsider, this stuff all does sound like fluff. And yet it's the realest thing that I've participated in in all my life is this inner work that lets go of all the creeds and all the dogma and all the, you know, last week we had Phil McLemore on and he said, you know, often we, we have some spiritual experience and then somebody comes along and goes, therefore, that's what this means. This is how we interpret it. And I'm just tired of other people interpreting things for me. I really want to do that work myself because that has been way more meaningful than someone else telling me how to interpret something. And, and I get that. If I could maybe just respond briefly and say, just invite people to wonder about this, because my understanding of the, of the great and spacious building concept is these are people that mock other people in their sincere efforts to hold to the rod, so to speak, or to follow a path or to not get lost or not drown in filthy waters. Uh, if I have said anything that has mocked another tradition, if I've said anything that has made you know laughed at another tradition or another person or another soul i should learn about it so if if any listener loves me they should reveal that to me the path of love is also one of saying have you ever thought about how you treat other people or have you ever thought about you know i noticed this about you have you thought about it and so i guess my only response to a large and spacious building concept would be uh, if I've behaved like I'm in the description of that building, I would appreciate it if in whatever form, anonymously or in any other form, someone would tell me I'm a mocker or I'm a jeerer or anything else. Instead, I agree with you, Bill. I found tremendous fulfillment. I pay my tithing. I go to my meetings. I don't, I don't think there's, I don't like binary dichotomies myself. And I don't think there's a, a dichotomy between these people are rod holders and those people are large and spacious mockers. I think we all have troubles with these issues. Sometimes we are firm in our commitments and other times we do mock other people. And I hope I haven't really done that. But if I have, love would be not merely a rejection of what I'm saying, it seems to me. And I'm not trying to take on the commenter. I really am not. But I'm saying that love would be to to help me understand in what way I am in the great and spacious building and, and help, help me love me enough to help me. That's, that would be kind of my response. And, uh, you know, I just don't know who's in the large and spacious building for all I know I'm in it. 
I, I don't know anything about anybody else. I, I, I don't know. I don't even know what the large and spacious building is. Is it my political attitude? Is it my cultural attitude? Is it my relationship with my spouse? Is it the way I treat children? Is it the way I treat my students? Is it, I don't even know what that concept really means. It just, it, it may help me to understand myself and if it does good, but that that's my comment. Like, I don't know who's there. I don't know who's going to a place called heaven and who's going to a place called hell. I, I don't really know any of that. So who can I answer for? I can only answer for me. Yeah. It, it seems like it's all arbitrary constructs, right? Like it's all drawing lines in the sand and trying to create us and them. And, and the reality is like, it's, it's life. Yeah. And uh, the moment we start drawing lines that, that, you know, the, the animal that I'm eating is worth less than me, or the guy across the street is worth less than me, or the person who has more authority in my religious system is greater than I like, there's all too much in this world that draws lines and those lines just don't mean much to me anymore. I like that Shakespeare quote that says, you know, hell is empty. The devils, they're all here. <laughs> I love that quote, you know, and that's to me, that's what Sufism has always been. Like, let's let go of who's going to heaven, who's going to hell. Let's deal with the angel and devil inside. And that's really been what this practice has been for me. So as we wrap this up, uh, David, can you let us know where we've had a couple people comment on the side that, you know, this has, you know, tweaked an interest. Where can people find you and tell us about the Teton Meditation Group? Okay. So um, uh, I, I am just launching a webpage and that'd be a good way to contact me. The name of the webpage is uh, four words, concatenated, right? Stuck together of saints and sufis.org. So if they come there, they can also email me at Daoud, which is David in Arabic. Well, very similar to David in Hebrew, come to think of it. D-A-U-D at of saints and sufis.org. And they're, they're welcome to contact me there. Uh, I can leave, um, information with you also if you want i don't know if you post things to websites but those are two ways to get a hold of me and um just i would encourage that is that enough yeah and tell us about the teton meditation group oh teton sufi group yeah sufi group, so yeah. yeah yeah well whatever but it's a it's a group that i started sufis often do this where a guide will have a group they start mostly of my uh students but not all many of them are not initiated and um, in that particular uh, organization on Facebook, if someone sends me an invite, David Peck in Rexburg should come to me. Uh, my picture with this hat on it is, is on the Facebook. So if they go look for David Peck or David D, that's my middle initial, David D Peck, uh, I'd be happy to respond to their invitation. We do have some group rules of how to respectfully communicate and that sort of thing that you can expect from a Facebook group. And I post things, other people post things. Uh, I do group meditations. If someone would like to have a group meditation or anything leading up to even a workshop or whatever, I'd be happy to try and schedule that with people and they just need to contact me. So did that help? It's just, so Teton Sufi group is just a bunch of us who want to talk and learn about each other gather. And I try to give a message once in a while and other people say more important things than I do and they get to benefit from that. Right. So it's just a, it's just a, a meeting forum. It's a sharing form. That's perfect. That that was it for me. Did you have anything, Bill, before I wrap up? No, no, no. Great, great conversation. I, I really appreciated <laughs> yeah. you taking the time to sit down with us. Yeah. Can so I? So I'm gonna I'm gonna embarrass you if I can. Oh, okay, okay. 
I wonder. I, I am going to embarrass you. I've done this before, but um, <laughs> people, you, you didn't mention that uh, some of you who were maybe a student would know this, but David has a really beautiful singing voice and there's a really common way to kind of close <laughs> a meditation. And whenever I have him speak or, or when we're out, you know, doing these groups, um, if you could just sing to us uh, kind of how these meditations end, it's, it's just so beautiful. And that's how we'll sign off today. Thank you. I'd be happy to. Just let me say, leading up into that, that we do have a traditional greeting among ourselves as Sufis, among everybody. It's very similar to the concept of namaste and, and these others, which is we say the word who, and it means we recognize your divine soul within you. We acknowledge it. And, and, and so I would say to everybody, who? The song is very simple. May all beings be well. May all beings be happy. Peace. 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 Who? Bill, you're, you're muted, but thank you. Thank yeah, you so thanks. much, David. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having okay. me. If anything else? No. All right. We'll end with that. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.